Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we get to read together from Psalm 22. Now, this is a prominent psalm in the church, and especially in the the theology of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and making those connections from the Old Testament to the New. This psalm lays out the suffering of Jesus Christ on Good Friday. And for that reason, many Lutheran congregations have the tradition, some of them read this psalm on Good Friday during their service together, but some of them will actually do this at the end of Maundy Thursday's service. So you're familiar probably with the tradition of stripping the altar, where at the end of the service on on Thursday evening, all the different elements that are up front um, in the sanctuary on the altar, some of the candles, the remaining elements from the Lord's Supper, if there's a cross on the altar or an altar book, these sorts of things are carried out so that the altar is laid bare on the day of Christ's crucifixion. Many churches that do that stripping of the altar will actually have Psalm 22 read or sung. Sometimes it's read just by the pastor. Sometimes it's read responsively, pastor and people. You'll see different variations of this, but that's a common place to see Psalm 22 recorded for us together. My encouragement to you, especially if uh, you have children, this is helpful, but I think anybody would benefit from this. Pick one of the crucifixion accounts and read it today before you read Psalm 22. So that's Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, John 19. Read whichever one you'd like, right? Read one of those, and then as you read this psalm, so if you're an adult by yourself or with another, like your spouse, certainly you know go back and forth and talk about how you see these things in the crucifixion. But if you have small children or, or older children, give them the opportunity to pause you as you read Psalm 22 to them, any time they see a connection to Jesus, to his passion, to his crucifixion on Good Friday, there are several things that stand out, things that are even quoted directly in the crucifixion narrative. So that would be my encouragement to you. Read this, read the crucifixion account first, and then just go through this together and see it as it plays out. So I'm going to read it to you here, and with this in mind now, as I read it to you, you can do the same thing. You can begin to think of how these events mentioned in Psalm 22 connect to Christ's crucifixion. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, and not a man, 
and scorned by mankind and despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in Yahweh, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb, you made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evil doers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Yahweh, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will praise you. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise Yahweh. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to Yahweh, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Hopefully many things jumped out at you already, but let's cover some of them together now. So this psalm begins, even before what we would call verse 1, with the the notes about it, so it's to the choir master, that means this one is to be sung by the congregation. It is according to the Doe of the Dawn. The Lutheran Study Bible suggests that that might be a reference to a, a tune, the name of a tune that they would use together to sing this in particular. It is a Psalm of David. Now, noting that this is a Psalm of David, there are certainly things in here that David could have expressed himself, right? Not everything in the a man's life is going to go well. There are going to be dark moments, moments of suffering, moments of affliction. It is possible, David writes this, at some moment of deep darkness within his own life. Even if that is the case, however, um, two things. First, he's got some exaggeration going on, if that is true, such as verse 16, that they pierced his hands and his feet. 
we know of no such event in David's lifetime where he was harmed in, in that way. But second, even if that is the case, right, this this idea of Old Testament prophecy often does that, where there is an immediate context, an immediate thing that happens, not always immediate, but within the next couple hundred years sometimes, there's a, a current event that it fixes on, and then there is a future fulfillment, a greater fulfillment that comes in Christ himself. So it is possible that this is a dark moment in David's life that he writes this in, and so there is a bit of him crying out to God here, but that it is ultimately pointing forward to Christ himself and the crucifixion. Or the other option is the Holy Spirit has simply brought this about in King David to write this psalm that foreshadows or prophesies of the crucifixion of the Savior who would come. So those are ways to see it. Now, the very first line is probably the best known line in the entire psalm, right? There's a reason for that. And not just because Christ said it on the cross. I mean, that's the reason he says it on the cross, is that it's the name of the psalm. Today, for example, if you wanted to talk about your favorite hymn, you would call your favorite hymn by its title. And most likely, that title is the first line of the hymn. Amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, right? Um, God's own child, I gladly say it. I am baptized into Christ. We name our hymns, by their first line. This is the Old Testament's hymnal, and they did the same thing. So when Jesus is on the cross, and he declares these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Matthew 27, verse 46, Mark chapter 15, verse 34. Recorded in both of those accounts here. When Jesus says those words, many focus on the idea that God forsook him, There's an element to that there, but I think more prominently is the idea that Jesus is pointing here, right? Jesus has just declared in the presence of the people who are mocking him, in the presence of his own disciples, in the presence of the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests and the soldiers, he's declared in their presence the name of one of their Old Testament hymns, the name of one of the hymns that they would sing together themselves. Right? This is like if your pastor is preaching a sermon and he makes reference to something. I know that my Redeemer lives. Many of you would be able to immediately go in your mind into that hymn because you've sung it many times. You know it. You know some of those words. And so he can make allusions, he can make connections to that hymn simply from bringing up the title. Jesus is bringing up the title of a hymn. And the people who are standing there should be able, in their mind, to think of the words of that hymn and put the connections together and recognize the Old Testament said this was going to happen. The Old Testament, the Lord said this was going to happen, and here it is unfolding before our very eyes. And for those who recognize it, they recognize Jesus as their Savior. Those who don't recognize it, they become part of the hymn they become part of the psalm as they wag their heads, as they mock him on the cross, as they encircle him, seeking his death, as they cast lots over him. So that's helpful, I think, to know and to see this connection. So the first two verses about Jesus crying out and not having an answer, about there being no rest from the suffering that day. It was just, we can't even fathom 
how much he went through on the cross for us that day. But it turns, right? Yet you are holy. So he speaks of the Father. He speaks of his holiness. Verse 3 has a really neat picture that the Father is enthroned on the praises of Israel. So we are called to glorify God, that is to lift him up. We are called to exalt him, that is to lift him up. So the picture, you know, you think of the athlete who just had the great game and all of his teammates at the end of the game, or even if it's a college event, maybe the crowd rushes the the field and they pick up the athlete, they put them on their shoulders and they march them around. That's glorifying that man, that athlete, that day. We are to glorify, to lift up the Lord. And so here we do so with our praises. That becomes like a seat, a throne on which the Lord sits. It's a neat picture. Our fathers trusted in God. So you could talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. You can talk about Joseph and what happened in his life. You can talk about the Exodus account, right, as the the Israelites were brought out of, rescued from Egypt, even as weak as their trust may have been, right? They trusted in God. God delivered them. They cried, they prayed to him, and they were rescued. They were not put to shame. It shifts again, though, but I am a worm and not a man. So Jesus, experiencing that shame, experiencing that humiliation on the cross, the cross, the crucifixion idea is a public humiliation. It's intentional that way to to really bring even greater sorrow to the family, to shame that entire family before a community. Scorned by mankind, despised by the people. Again, you can see that in Jesus on the cross. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. So you have the mockery of Jesus when the soldiers put the robe on him and the crown and they start beating him. You have the mockery of Jesus as he hangs on the cross. You can see that, right, as the different groups speak to him in such a way. Even one of the criminals crucified right there beside him does it. They wag their heads. Matthew 27, verse 39 specifically says they wagged their heads at him. And then verse 8, put in quotation marks here, you know, putting words into the mouths of his opponents. But these are the words they actually speak in Matthew 27, verse 43. He trusts in the Lord. He trusts in Yahweh. Let him deliver him. So Matthew 27, verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. They speak the words of the psalm themselves. Maybe that even becomes intentional with Jesus having made the connection for them in their minds that they are going to use God's own words against him. That's a possibility. That they would become participants in the psalm thinking that they were mocking this guy that they still don't believe in even while he was taking that one last effort to share God's word with them and show them who he really was. Verse 9 gives us the comforting idea that the Father knows even us from the time that we're in the womb, that he leads even us, that we can have faith in the womb. As we see it in, in the narrative of Jesus' infancy, right? The idea that John the Baptist has faith in the womb. When Mary visits Elizabeth and John recognizes the Savior is present, he jumps in her womb. And Elizabeth declares that, right? It's not just like a Oh, what a coincidence moment. There's more to it than that, right? Now, 
This is specifically about Jesus. So the Lord has provided, God has provided for him. God has called him from the womb, from even that conception, that he would be the one to save his people. You think of Matthew chapter 1, the angel delivering the message to Mary, to Joseph, that he will save his people from their sins. So he calls for God the Father to help him. Then he goes back to the trouble that is at hand in verse 12. So bulls encompass me. If you were encircled by bulls, death is probably imminent, right? As they're going to crush you, trample you, uh, gore you, they're going to kill you. And then he specifically references strong bulls of Bashan that surrounded him. Bashan is an area to the east of what we would call the Sea of Galilee today. It was the Sea of Canareth in the Old Testament time. There are many fields there, um, a good spot to graze for bulls. So raising bulls was a part of what they did, and they're known for it in Bashan. That they open their mouths at him like a roaring lion. They're seeking to devour. And that's going to certainly bring a connection to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Uh, the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I want to bring you back to that at verse 21, though, so hold that thought. I'm poured out like water. So you think of having a jar and just dumping the water out gone, wasted, Jesus' life given away. There's also the connection to the water that was mixed with the blood that poured from his side when they pierced him with the spear. My bones are out of joint, a reference to the torture that he endures that day, to his hanging. Uh, You know, you think of the entire body, uh, the weight of his body being placed upon just those, those spots that are pierced. That would have certainly done something like this, the dislocations that may have been involved. His heart like wax melted uh, or spent, we might even say. You think of a candle melting down, burning, and, and, and just being nothing left. His strength dried up like a pot shard, so a broken piece of pottery. Frail, brittle. His tongue sticks to his jaws, the dehydration of that moment. You lay me in the dust of death, and we would talk there of the, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Dogs encompass me. They have pierced my hands and feet. So again, the idea, not specifically of David here, it could be him exaggerating a moment in his life, but more so pointing us to Jesus in the future. can count all my bones, so the harm and torture that has been done to him has revealed his bones, not necessarily because of malnourishment, but because of the flogging, right? The, the terrible atrocity that that was upon him. Uh, the damage to his flesh. They stare, gloat over me. They divide garments, cast lots. Matthew chapter 27, verse 35, we'll mention that specifically. Verse 19, Jesus calls on Yahweh to not be far off, but to come quickly to my aid. On the third day, God the Father will raise Jesus Christ from the dead. Right, he does come to his aid. He does deliver his soul from the sword, his life from the power of the dog. This is Psalm 16, verse 10. Where again, a psalm of David, David writes, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. In Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost sermon Peter preaches connects to that very psalm to point out that Jesus, well, first, that David is still dead, right? His tomb is there with them even to that day. But Jesus, Jesus is not going to be left to dead. Jesus instead has been raised by the Father. So, 
Verse 21 is why I said I wanted to bring you back to the idea of what the, the devil has done in 1 Peter 5, 8, that he's that prowling lion seeking someone to devour. But verse 21, save me from the mouth of the lion. The Father has delivered the Son. So this is Genesis 3, right? That first promise of a Savior, the Proto-Evangelium, Genesis 3.15, that enmity would be between the woman and between the serpent, that her offspring would crush his head and he would bite its heel. That's a reference to the one who would come to crush the devil for us. So the devil thinks he's victorious as he gets the Son of God on the cross. But it's in that very moment that, that the devil and his plans are undone, that his evil is thwarted. And that is why Psalm 21, uh, Psalm 22, verse 21, and says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Jesus knows that he has been rescued, right? That's past tense. God has delivered him. God is delivering him. God has done it. And that's going to be the last verse as well. So now we shift into praise that comes out of this. And there's more notes here, certainly too, but I'm going to kind of work through this quickly because we're at time. So I will tell of your name to my brothers. That is exactly what Jesus does, right? He praises the Father before his brothers. He praises the Father before all of the people of God so that they will too praise the Father. The idea that all of the offspring of Jacob, of Israel, would glorify God, stand in fear, all of him, connects to Romans chapter 9 for us today where Paul says that those who are children of Abraham are those who are children of the promise. That it's not by being the flesh and blood offspring of Abraham, but by being, well, being Isaac's, right? Isaac is the son of the promise. When they tried to trust in flesh and blood ways of doing things, it produced Ishmael. But when they trusted in God's promise, they were given Isaac. And that's the point here. We are children of the promise, so we are children We are offspring of Israel ourselves. So God hears our prayers, is verse 24. Verse 25, Jesus will praise the Father in the midst of the great congregation, that's the church. And you can think of how his vows he will perform before those who fear him. So think of how Jesus serves us even today. Might be a good family conversation. How does Jesus serve us? What promises has he made? How is he keeping them? The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Think of the Lord's Supper there, right? Verse 27, really through the end of the psalm here, are going to focus on how God's promises are to the world, right? The family of the nations shall worship. Kingship belongs to Yahweh. He rules over the nations, not just Israel, but all people. God is the Lord of the entirety of his creation. He made this, and we are his. We are his creatures. Now, we don't all trust in him. We don't all follow him, and that... That is a great sorrow. But Christ came to die on the cross for us all. So it shall be told to the coming generation, to a people yet unborn. This is what we do. In fact, this is why you and I are Christians to this day, because that good news has been proclaimed. It has been shared from one generation to the next. This can happen while we're still in the womb. A child in the womb can have faith, so preach it, right? Read that word of God together. If you have a child in the womb, if you're with child, much better phrase than expecting. If you're with child, read God's word aloud at home. Sing out loud at home the hymns of the Lord. Pray out loud at home. Let your child hear, because we know they can. And 
rejoice at what the Lord does. So, but again, generations yet unborn is also more specifically a reference to the idea this is going to continue. And so you're going to have children and you teach the faith to them. They're going to have children and they teach the faith to them. And what are we teaching? The final words, that he has done it. Jesus Christ has conquered sin, death, and the devil, and he's done it for you, he's done it for me, and God the Father has raised him from the dead. His promises have been fulfilled. There's one more yet to come, that he will raise you, that he will raise me, and bring us to be with himself forevermore. He's already raised Christ. There's no reason for him to go back on his word now. The price has been paid. He has done it. Amen. Praise we cry.